0: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? It's less than a month to go until the Winter Olympics being held in Beijing and a number of countries have announced that they are boycotting these games. But how much does China really care about the Olympics? And if it cares, why exactly does it matter? On this episode, I'll be speaking to Dr. Susan Brownell, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Missouri and author of Beijing's Game, What the Olympics Mean to China. She is also a former athlete and has even competed in China, representing Peking University during her time as a student there. On the episode, we'll be talking about everything from what it was like to be in Beijing in 2008 during the Summer Olympics... The history of sports and diplomacy in China. And we also end up going on a little digression about demolitions, that destruction of old buildings, traditional buildings in China, which happened especially before the Olympics and the politics of that. So I hope you enjoy. So Susan, we are less than a month away from the beginning of the Winter Olympics in Beijing and quite a few countries uh, have boycotted it. And some of them are not calling it a boycott, but they're not sending any diplomats or politicians there. So, for example, the US, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Lithuania, Kosovo, Estonia, Belgium, Austria and Japan have all said they're not going to send anyone there out of those the UK and Japan and New Zealand have been quite careful to not call it a boycott. Do you think China will care about this? I think China will be
1: tracking who sends diplomats and who doesn't. Yes, I think it is important to China and they'll remember it. Now, whether there will actually be serious repercussions, uh, I think, is, is still an open question. And we'll have to see how that plays out down the line. It could be that in the end, China will decide it's not worth it to make, any, make a bigger deal out of it because I think at the moment they're trying to downplay it by saying essentially it will be a wonderful games, the sports will be wonderful, they will be very well organized and nobody cares whether politicians are there or not.
0: Yeah, well, except China, I mean, China has invited Putin, so he, they want some uh, political friends there.
1: Well, I think they would have liked it if key heads of state would, would have shown up, yes. And, and they'll remember, especially the ones uh, uh, who, who publicly stated that they were engaging in a diplomatic boycott. I, uh, China has a long memory and with respect to events like that. So, uh, you know, it will be recorded somewhere in the books.
0: And Susan, taking a step Back then, I'm keen to talk about the 2008 Olympics as a way of understanding the importance of these games to China. The thing I remember most vividly was the opening ceremony. It enlisted Zhang Yimou, this director of Hero, which listeners might have seen. It had 15,000 performers, lasting over four hours, and it was estimated of around $100 million to produce. I thought it was amazing. I I had left China at that point, and I was watching it from London, but I felt an immense pride in being Chinese because of the celebration of especially traditional Chinese culture in that opening ceremony. And I think it's symbolic of how much the Chinese cared about that, that they even got... Uh, This little girl who was singing a patriotic song at the end of the ceremony, it turns out that she was miming it because she was considered prettier than the actual singer. Another little girl who was doing it backstage which was um, a bit of a embarrassing moment domestically with a lot of people laying pressure on on Zhang Yimou and the creative and the production team for doing something like that but I think all of that goes to show how much effort and importance was put into these opening ceremonies I guess it's a product of its time it symbolized a China that was opening up looking back at it it feels like a much more optimistic view of what China could be on a global stage.
1: Yes, the opening ceremony in 2008 really was spectacular. And I think it's probably the only opening ceremony that actually got rebroadcast over the years, um, over the next few years, on NBC television in the US. I, I think most opening ceremonies pro- probably don't have enough entertainment value, you know, enough sheer entertainment value that the network would think there would be an audience for that. But that one actually did. It was, yeah, it, it was legendary. It was parodied in, you know, a popular cartoon, South Park. Yeah, I mean, it made its way into popular culture in the U.S. And I, I, I think that's the only opening ceremony I can remember that had that kind of impact and that was so memorable.
0: Were you in Beijing at the time you were working there?
1: I was. I was in Beijing for an entire year before the Beijing Olympics. And I was actively working on projects with my colleagues um, at the Beijing Sport University and and other academic colleagues Uh, uh, we were working with the organizing committee BOCOG, and with the Beijing municipal government and I was sometimes engaged with the International Olympic Committee so yes I was sort of in the thick of
0: things in 2008 and when you were in Beijing did you get a very real feeling that the central government took the 2008 Olympics very, very seriously.
1: Yes, uh, the, the central leadership cared a lot about the 2008 Olympics because that was China's coming out party and that was the realization of what was called China's 100 year dream because it had been in 1907 that the first call for China to host an Olympic games in order to symbolize its presence as a power as an equal nation among the strong nations of the world, had been issued by YMCA-trained patriots, so that really meant a lot. And I also think that um, you know China has a, a very long and well-developed history of state rituals, and so going back to the Qing Dynasty, you know, and the grand sacrifice, it was always a a, a part of that of. It was a a cultural tradition that a ritual had to be perfect in order to sort of have its effect, renewing the compact between heaven, emperor, and earth, or whatever. So I think that perfectionism also had this cultural background, that this was, in a way, almost a sacred ritual that was symbolizing and marking China's entry into the uh, international community as a world power. So... That uh, particular Olympic Games was um, associated, it it was a strongly central government led effort. Unlike this one, I think the central government has backed off a little bit and let, for example, uh, Beijing city and the state sports general administration play a larger role than they did, or at least letting them have uh, more (laughs) authority and power than they had in 2008. And one, one really felt in interviewing members of the IOC's Coordination Commission, for example, they, they also felt this fear, really, that went throughout the system, the fear of making a mistake, because everybody involved in the effort at all levels, from the provincial governments on up to the Beijing municipal government and the different ministries, they had been told at the very end that we want zero mistakes. There should be absolutely no mistakes. So the whole, uh, all, all the government officials involved in the effort were just kind of quaking, <laughs> just <laughs> trying, try, you know, because they were afraid there would be severe consequences if they made a mistake. And it, I think those people, the international community dealing with China during that time really felt the, the fear sort of ramp up as the event approached. I don't think that sort of fear and this paralysis that that produces throughout the whole system, because then government officials are afraid to act as well. I, I don't think that has characterised this Olympic Games quite as much.
0: Why, why do you think that is? What, what makes a difference? Is it because it's a Winter Olympics?
1: Well, it's not China's coming out party, for one thing. They already had that. They already sort of emerged as a superpower. I think China just has more confidence as, um, in its international standing now. Um, they've done it once. Also, it is true that organizationally the Winter Olympics are much smaller, so they're a much easier event to organise.
0: So would you say that the reason that the 2008 Olympics mattered just so much is because, would you say it was majority because of soft power to demonstrate that it had that cultural prowess and that economic prowess now after its recent history?
1: I, I think that there were two aspects of the 2008 Olympics, and one was outward facing. It was facing towards the international community, and then another was domestic. The outward facing part of it had to do with improving China's national image, its coming out party, and the pursuit of soft power, which at that time was actually a relatively new concept in China, um, which you know it had just been officially stated as... Um, as uh, Communist Party policy in 2005 by Hu Jintao. So I I don't think we should overrate the importance of the pursuit of soft power because in my involvement in these efforts that were going on that were led um, by the Beijing city um, government and by Bocog, I was struck by the fact that I felt the majority of the effort was domestically oriented. So it was about, so I, I was um, working with the Olympic education programs in the schools, for example, and that was about a kind of, uh, it was, uh, which reached possibly as many as 400,000 children across China, you know, were engaged in some kind of um, what's called Olympic education program or activity. So that that was really oriented towards internationalizing the Chinese population and preparing it to take its place in the world, and also teaching children to see and understand China's new, revised world status, China as an equal among other nations. So through the Olympic Games, children were taught to be proud of their country, so it was a part of patriotic education. It was different from other kinds of patriotic education because it was non-political. So if you, if you went through the materials and the policy documents, you would almost never find the word socialism or communism. It was more about teaching children China's Olympic history, its sport history, and, and then showing that, hey, China can compete with other nations, and you should be proud of that. And I, I met a lot of teachers teachers, not not the children, but teachers who said that these Olympic education programs had strongly affected them because, you know, they realized they had never really been proud of China in the way that they came to be in learning about Olympic history and watching the hosting of the Beijing Olympic Games. Um, you know, there were also huge programs to teach English to, you know, everybody, especially in Beijing, was learning English, you know, the, the old ladies, the, um, you know, Lao tai tai, the the taxi drivers. And, okay, they didn't succeed very well in mastering English, but I think the bigger point is they perceived themselves as living in a world in which they needed to know English because China is interacting with the outside world. And you know they expected that they were going to be meeting all these foreigners and I, and so i think that perception of being a part of the world was was new and i do think that was probably part of the lasting legacy of the beijing olympic games
0: Well, that's very interesting because i think these days when people think about chinese patriotism or chinese nationalism or the words inspiring the chinese to love china you know it can seem sinister, or at least jingoistic, or at least inward looking. But the, the the scene that you're describing is not like that. And certainly what struck me from the opening ceremony was how many aspects of traditional Chinese culture away from recent history away from the communists were portrayed as sources of pride. It was a very, it was almost a more traditional way of loving China, more, less political than ch- maybe a lot of Chinese people would have felt and seen from the government in recent years.
1: Yes, I mean, what went on with the opening ceremony was that, more than any other major effort, was outward facing. That was specifically designed for the foreign audience. And we, we sort of know that because Zhang Yimou was chosen to choreograph and direct it. And he, at that point, was not all that popular inside China. His films had been wildly popular outside China. Inside China, people sometimes thought that he sort of sold out Chinese traditional culture or exoticized it or didn't really understand it all that well, but just presented it in a way that catered to foreign tastes because he had been much applauded internationally from the time of his first film, Hong Liang Red Sorghum. Uh, I think since that time, he's done more work for the government and maybe has gotten a better image domestically. He didn't actually have a great image at that time. There was discussion of removing him and substituting somebody else. You know, that had all been very controversial, but I think they kept Zhang Yimou because they knew that he would create a ceremony that would appeal to foreign tastes. So the opening ceremony was really for foreigners. And at that time, a lot of Beijingers didn't really like the traditional focus of the opening ceremonies. Oh, really? They thought it was outmoded and that it didn't really express, you know, the modern China. They wanted to see things that were new, and many of the performances were old to them. They were on a bigger scale, but they'd seen it before. They'd seen the mass calisthenics, they'd seen the wushu, you know, the martial arts. Yeah, so that, that performance really was one part of the games that was completely orient, oriented towards foreigners. And, and so one of the reasons they stuck to so much traditional Chinese culture is that they know that that appeals to foreigners. And it also avoids controversial political issues that don't have universal appeal you know, So the Communist Party was just kind of absent from that. The revolution was absent, and that, that's why. It's, it's because they were seeking to appeal to international tastes and also more specifically to the Chinese diaspora in East Asia, so Japan, um, Korea, and then the large Chinese diaspora in Taiwan and you know, United States and elsewhere. And I think they really succeeded with that.
0: Yeah, well, it certainly did from from my experience, or maybe by 2008, I was already a foreigner. (laughs) And Susan, can we talk a little bit about China's relationship with sports in general? Because Chinese people love to watch the Olympics, wherever it's held. And I also know people who stayed up very, very late to watch the Euros football last year as well. And what do you think the relationship between China and mass sports is like? Well, I think
1: everybody would agree that sports led China out of the disaster of the Cultural Revolution and that the revival of patriotism uh, after the Cultural Revolution was led actually by the women's volleyball team, which won five consecutive world titles. And so s- sports, since that time, the 1980s, have, ha- have had this cachet and this ability to make Chinese people feel proud of their country. I I think it's a tradition that really goes back to the women's volleyball team of the 1980s, because at that time, there wasn't a lot of other stuff of which China could be proud. And certainly, China at that time was not, you know, exactly a major player on the world stage economically or in any other way. So when the women's volleyball team showed that they could compete with the world in what was a pretty major Olympic sport. It was a new thing for Chinese people and there was quite an enthusiastic and broad audience for their performances. And then I think it sort of broadened to to soccer or football, which is today the most popular sport in China. Not that China is that good in that sport, but the audience just was really, I think, intrigued by, but you know, you have to understand that sports was also the way in, in which global popular culture entered China. And there were just so many new things after the end of the Cultural Revolution and the period of opening up that the Chinese people just had no idea were going on out there in the world. And really, these high-level competitive sports were were one of those things. And with the advent of broader television coverage and a lot of attention was given to sports, that was, you know, the, the Chinese Central TV was fairly highly censored, and what was shown was often pretty mind-numbing, but sports weren't. <laughs> So just that that whole um post-cultural revolution experience laid the groundwork for I think the the um the popular interest that we see today. It didn't necessarily get a lot of people involved in doing sports themselves, (laughs) but it it created the television audience that has continued to grow since that time. The the NBA, the U.S. basketball organization, also played a big role in that too.
0: Mm. And Susan, that was your time in China as well. Was that the first time you'd been to China, you were there as a student but you were already an athlete as a student in America. So you had actually been competing for a team for Peking University. Is that right? Can you tell us about that time? What was it like? Right. Yeah, I had
1: actually just competed in the U.S. Olympic trials in 1984. I was a track and field athlete. I did the heptathlon. I had been nationally ranked, and, uh, but I wasn't good enough to make the U.S. Olympic team in 1984. And then in 1985 I went to China as the first part of my plan to do a dissertation on Chinese sports and I was studying Chinese at Peking University and I went to the head of the track team and asked if I could run for the track team and he said I could. So one thing led to another and I ended up being selected to compete in the National College Games in 1986 where I won a gold medal in the heptathlon and I set a national record, and I ran on two silver medal relay teams. I helped my, uh, my team, to the, the Beijing City College team, to a um, second-place finish, and I was hailed as the American girl who won glory for <laughs> Beijing.
0: <laughs> what was that like? I mean, did people welcome that, or were your competitors thinking, what is she doing here? She's not even Chinese. <laughs>
1: I think there were some competitors that were a little annoyed. But for the most part, I was welcomed. It, it was it was an absolutely wonderful experience. It was extremely rare in those days. Um, foreigners on the whole couldn't live together with Chinese people. But I got to live with my teammates during the two and a half month training camp that we had and then during the competition themselves. I really think a big part of it was sports, because ever since the era of ping-pong diplomacy, sports in China have have been targeted as kind of an, a zone where China does mix with the international community. Other zones are quite closed off you know, to the international community, but sports, that, that's been the purpose of sports. The main purpose of high-level sports has been to serve Chinese diplomacy and and so for that reason sports was a, a realm in which I could have experiences like that whereas other realms it, it wasn't possible to mix with chinese people on that level
0: yes of course ping pong diplomacy is so important in china's sports history uh, and sports as uh, diplomacy because that was when when in the early 1970s ping pong played between american and chinese teams heralded this kind of rapprochement between America under Nixon uh, and China under Mao And I think the importance of ping-pong diplomacy and the women's volleyball team, as you mentioned, and their successes in the 1980s, is really summed up by this quote I found from the People's Daily, uh, written at the time of the Rio Olympics in 2016. It says, If table tennis set the stage for China's international diplomacy, then volleyball rebuilt the nation's confidence. So clearly the Chinese have this idea themselves of the importance of sports and diplomacy. And Susan, can we talk a little bit about what Beijing as a city went under in the preparation for the Olympics? Because there was a lot of getting ready, wasn't there? $7 billion was estimated to have been spent on the Olympics itself. But that actually doesn't include all the infrastructure or all the other things that were put into place in preparation. I
1: think anyone living in Beijing at the time would recognize that, uh, would support the idea that Those infrastructure projects did improve the quality of life of Beijingers. So the subway system was, uh, many new lines were added. It was massively increased. So public transportation improved by leaps and bounds. There was a big effort to clean up pollution, both the pollution of the water and of the canals and the air pollution. The air pollution effort took a long time to show any results. There were the famous blue skies that finally showed up right before the the game started. And that that proved to be unsustainable, at least to have blue skies. But it was pretty amazing to have such blue skies during the, the length of the games.
0: How do they do it?
1: Well, a lot of measures were instituted in the city that were not good enough to produce blue skies, but they helped a lot. So they had odd, even license plate days for cars for using the streets and roads inside the Fifth Ring Road of Beijing. And they, they moved the capital steel, uh, started moving it outside the city. Of course, that site is now the site of the organizing committee headquarters for this Olympic Games and finally, what they had to do, which was something they couldn't do over the long term, was just to shut down almost every factory inside Beijing and for probably miles outside of Beijing. And, and that, of course, they had to open them back up. But... Um, yeah I remember I had been contacted by a publisher who wanted me to write an essay for an academic journal and then uh, shortly before the the it was due and before the games were to start, she contacted me to say don 't bother we 've been shut down because publishing apparently is a tremendously polluting industry right. so uh, yeah so they that you know I met an idle factory worker on the uh, the um, Subway, who was just sitting there and started chatting to me and said, yeah, what do you think about the fact that we factory workers have no work? I mean, we've been sent home. The factories are closed. So that's how severe that effort was to produce blue skies. But, it, you know, it did make people in Beijing realize it was possible and to remind them what it was like. And, you know, I think I do support the idea that you hear from Thomas Bach, the president of the IOC, that one thing that Olympic Games do is to present a vision of a better world. And yes, it may be an illusion, but it does give people hope or makes them realize, hey, maybe this is possible. And I I do think that the pollution control made people realize, you know, it's not hopeless, It, it could be done. And it made them much more discontent with uh, especially air pollution, when it uh, became such a severe problem again over the next couple of years.
0: And one other controversy from that time was the destruction of traditional houses. Uh, so in Beijing in particular, there were many hutong, which are these neighborhoods formed of narrow alleyways, opening up to courtyard houses, which had you know a courtyard in the middle and three or four buildings around that courtyard. It's a very communal kind of living. But I think I'm right in saying that a lot of that was destroyed because of the Olympics. Am I right? Because I mean, you've got headlines from the New York Times, for example, saying "Olympics imperial historic Beijing neighborhood." So, did you talk to anyone involved in the dislocation and demolition of that time?
1: I did. the The hutongs are in the south city, and that is not actually where the the Olympics related demolition was taking place, because the Olympic park is in the north of the city. So. You know, as you know, demolitions were were going on all the time everywhere in China. And whether uh, the Olympic, like to what degree many of the demolitions were directly attributable to Olympic construction is not clear. Because typically the figures that you read about the total number of demolitions in the city leading up to the Beijing Games included all of them, many of which would have happened anyway. And I really think the hutongs, tended to fall into the category of projects that might have happened anyway. But what happened up north was demolitions of, um, you know, that's a newer part of the city, the area where the the venues, the Bird's Nest Stadium and the Water Cube were erected was, uh, I mean... I I think it was owned by a lot of small businesses, sort of petty landlords, and I did I had actually a very good friend who was a taxi driver, and he drove me all around Beijing. He was my driver during the Beijing Olympics, and I talked at length with him about what had happened to him. So what happened up there was that actually the procedures by which people were evicted were much more regulated and. They didn't bring, you know, for example, they didn't bring in thugs to drag people out of their houses but because they knew that the spotlight would be on that part of the demolition, including the International Olympic Committee, which was monitoring what was happening there and getting regular reports. So my friend did support me in saying, yes, it was, it was much more systematic and regular than it is often true of um, demolitions of other parts of the city. So, and the compensation was perhaps a little better than what other people might have gotten in other parts of the city. So, so that's the positive side of things. In, in a way, the Olympic construction was just sort of more. It followed the rules and regulations more than is often the case.
0: Mm, However, I got it.
1: Exactly. I have to say though, that in talking to him about what he lost, I was thinking, you know, maybe so. Maybe this was all legal and in according to Chinese law, which is what the IOC requests of these mass evictions. But it, uh, the people who lived there did certainly pay a big price. I mean, in his case, he, had, uh, he was a mechanic who had a shop and the shops were just flattened and gone. So he no longer, but, but he got a settlement. So then you've got money. You, you, So many of these people went from a situation of having a regular income to having a, a, a lot of money. Now, you have to find a way to invest the money so that you have ongoing income, otherwise you lose out. And I, I think that was sort of the challenge. I went through his finances with him and in the end it's sort of like, well, he, he maybe came out even. He He started out a mechanic, he ended up a taxi driver. Um, he ended up, he did have a, a decent property with, of some value in Shangdi, which is, uh, was a sort of up and coming suburb not too far away from the, the, uh, the Olympic Park itself. Yeah, anyway, so I, I do think that the organizing committee didn't didn't really get credit for the fact that it tried, at least in the Olympic Park area. It tried to follow the host city contract. It kept the IOC up to date. It tried to make sure that all the laws were followed. But demolition is just such such a fraught issue in China that there were just way too many activist groups, NGOs, that were Presenting it in, in its entire negative <laughs> phase.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there was definitely a demolition phase in the growing of China, wasn't there? Which was the in the particularly in the 90s, as these glass and steel towers came up, they didn't come out of empty ground. You know, there were old houses that were destroyed, and I remember with my family members, there were definitely a few years where no matter if you lived in the city or in the countryside you were talking about chai qian, you were talking about demolitions and what kind of compensation, how much, how to maximise your compensation from the government through all sorts of um, bureaucratic little <laughs> loopholes. Um, I think my, some of my family got got uh, quite well out of that because what the government wanted to do was to give you like an urban flat in exchange for your little, I don't know, your hut, which the land of which could be developed into something bigger. But uh, that does seem to be a period that is over now and this by-product of you know, the rapid growth that China went under. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, your experience is exactly the thing that was never covered in the the Western media, which was kind of focused on only the negative side of, of demolition of Chai Chian, They They never really reported on the entire phenomenon, which was that Many people were eagerly awaiting demolition because on, in the larger scale, this was a period in which the collectively owned property was being converted into privately owned property. It was a part of the dismantling you know, of the, the socialist system so that people. Started out, for example, in a, a an apartment that had been owned by their work unit, and then maybe they got as part of the process of um, you know the transition, the post socialist transition, they they got possession of that ratty apartment which <laughs> was falling apart and you know badly constructed, and then they were just waiting to get the lump uh the the lump sum that they would get for the demolition to invest it in what they wanted and something. That would have value on the real estate market. So, yeah, th- this was part of a general process uh, by which collective property then was sort of turned into private property. And many people, as you mentioned, were just just hoping that their apartment was going to be demolished because they wanted that lump sum, and they definitely. Would fight for the largest sum possible, and, and that's where the phenomenon of the dingza hu came from you know the the nail houses, the people who resisted because they were holding out for larger sums of money, and that was where you would get um, dramatic reports of the bulldozers rolling in while people were standing there, you know trying to stop the bulldozer, which really got a lot of attention in the Western media without an explanation of why they were standing there trying to stop the bulldozer.
0: Right, right. And I think for, for some members of my family, they had little tricks like declaring that their adult children were still living with them in order to get, uh, you know, f- f- more compensation because the headcount of people who are being moved would be higher as well. And I think that worked out quite well for them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, well, the, you know, that was something that, by the way, was mentioned to me by my friend who, um, whose property was demolished. That when the decision was made that the park, the Olympic Park, uh, the whole, you know, Olympic complex would be built there, that very quickly the authorities came in right away and they videotaped everything because they knew that people would immediately try to... um, Create additions or whatever to increase the value of their um, yeah game the system game the system yeah so they came in they videotaped everything they had a record and then they tried to establish as I said a, a decent level of compensation that kept people fairly happy and and that was just part of the systematic way in which it was done in that part of the city where the that complex was built.
0: Mm. And Susan, sorry, it's my bad for taking you down this digression of demolitions. But going back to the Olympics, can we talk a little bit about the International Olympic Committee and what relationship it should have with China, which is obviously very, very much in the news at the moment because of what happened to the tennis star Peng Shuai. Now, she had obviously made incredibly serious allegations against a high ranking former Chinese communist official. And instead of having her claims taken seriously by the police or investigator or anything like that, she went missing essentially on social media and people feared for her safety. Now, the Women's Tennis Association has still not yet reinstated their events in China in protest to lack of reassurance uh, for Peng Shuai's safety, but the International Olympic Committee has taken a completely different approach to this. They've managed to have two video calls with Peng Shuai but they've been pilloried essentially for kowtowing to the Chinese government. I'd be keen to hear what you think about how the IOC handled this whole situation but one thing that really struck me was their statement that they released after the second video call they had with Pong which said and I'll, I'll read out a little bit on this there are different ways to achieve her wellbeing and safety. We are using quiet diplomacy, which, given the circumstances and based on the experience of governments and other organizations, is indicated to be the most promising way to proceed effectively in such humanitarian matters. So I think in this we see two different approaches to China, right? I mean the WTA has boycotted China essentially, it's it's made its stance known, but it hasn't managed to get in contact with Ponchai, whereas on the other hand the IOC has gone for a softer approach and some might say spineless approach, and yet it has managed to get reassurances and speak to her directly. So so I wondered, what do you think of the IOC's relationship with China, and which is a topic that is only going to get ever more uh, politically sensitive?
1: I, I thought that was very well handled by the IOC, because for one thing, you had the unique situation that you had the Women's Tennis Association Founded by Billie Jean King, one of the icons of feminism in the United States, so that particular association, you know, its its branding is feminism. <laughs> so it was entirely it was, so that organization was the right one to really take on the situation in China to threaten to withdraw all its tournaments to bear the brunt of the financial cost. That that. That was the organization to do it. It was part of their history and their image. So you have a little bit of a good cop, bad cop situation, right? The IOC could let the WTA do the really drastic things. And then for the IOC even to take the measures that it did, I think was a new thing. I mean, I know I I had arguments with colleagues and journalists who were saying the IOC never changes. My argument would have been, no, I think this was a big change that the IOC took up this issue of possible sexual harassment at all. Because this is not a progressive feminist organization that, you know, particularly under Bach, they're taking maybe more steps than they had in the past at the level of rhetoric and policy. But the only major achievement of the IOC had been to try to get about a 50-50 participation level between male and female athletes at the Olympic Games. So I think it was a big step even for Thomas Bach to have those two videos and to publicly take a position. I think he could have left it to the WTA or he could have turned it over to the International Tennis Federation, and he didn't. Now... Should he have done more? Should the organization have done more? Um, I, of course, critics are always going to say yes. And I also think that silent diplomacy does work. I mean, I've studied sort of sport diplomacy from the inside. I, um, you know, I translated the biography of He Zhenliang, who was China's IOC member and a senior statesman and someone who had Been involved in sports diplomacy all through the years of ping pong diplomacy. I I knew him fairly well. We discussed these issues. And, you know, just when, from what I learned from him about how this kind of diplomacy works, I think that actually most of the major things that are accomplished are accomplished behind the scenes and out of the eyes of the media and the public. So one hopes that what he means is that he was in contact with the Chinese Olympic Committee and that, you know, that pressure was put on them, that, that there were some kinds of assurances behind the scenes. But the IOC, just like any diplomatic, you know, agency, doesn't like to reveal all of that to the public. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the way diplomacy on the whole works.
0: Susan, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there, but that's really fascinating and I think maybe worthwhile to do another episode just on quiet diplomacy with China, and whether or not it really does work. Susan Brownell, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers.
1: Well, thanks for having me today. It's been great to chat with you about all sorts of uh, very wide ranging issues.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there.